thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Uh, many of us don't like to hear, actually some people even consider it a four-letter word, is the word wait. Most of us struggle having to wait for things. It oftentimes starts when we're really young. I know my two girls don't like to wait for things. I might tell them something that they want, like, hey, you know what, after you finish school, I'm going to take you to the park and we're going to go have fun there. And then right away it's like, oh, daddy, daddy, can we go right now? Please, 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 please. No, you're going to have to wait. You're going to wait till school's done and then you go. And then 15 minutes later they'll come back to me, oh, daddy, please, can we go, can we go? And it doesn't stop, unfortunately, when we're kids, as we grow up, that last Lack of patience, that lack of desire to to wait usually continues with us. You know, we live in a day and age where technology is amazing, but I'm sure all of you have experiences I do. You know, it's not nice when you're having to wait on things to load and, you know, it's like, I just want this page to load or I want this video to download or whatever, and you're waiting and you get the little signs that come up there and, you know, it, it doesn't stop there as well. You know, when I go to the grocery store, you know, men and women shop differently. I go to get my stuff and get out as quick as possible. And, you know, I, I seek to pick the line that's going to go quickest. And I have this uncanny ability, I don't know what it is, where I always seem to pick the line that goes longest. Now, I'm looking, I'm thinking, what's the shortest line? Because logically, I think the shortest line is going to be the fastest line, but I found that not to be true. Uh, and so I'll pick the shortest line, I'll stand there, there'll be one person in front of me, they'll just have a few items. And the checkout lady is just super slow, and then they have this really long conversation about the weather or something. I'm like, come on, I need to get through here. And I'm looking at this other line that's super long, and the people are just going through quicker and quicker. I've actually had times where I've got out of line and moved to another line that was moving fast, and then that line starts to go slow, and I'm just like, come on. But, you know, probably for all of us, a place that we really don't like to wait is when we're driving. Anyone doesn't like to wait when they're driving? Well, yeah. Not a very good place to live if you don't like waiting when you're driving. Houston has one of the worst traffic in the world, and I drive a lot uh, with my job. And, you know, it's horrible to wait in traffic, you know, to go five miles and take you one hour to get that distance. You know, uh, that, that gets on your nerves. But, but something even worse than that, and I've noticed this throughout my day regularly, is when the light turns green and the person in front of you, they don't go. Hey, the light's green, come on. And, and oftentimes it's because they're texting or using their phone. But, you know, I, I have to, you know, re- resist the temptation. To how long am I going to wait before I honk and give them that notice of the light's green, time to go, let's get moving. Um, but, you know, this, this difficulty with waiting often transitions into our relationship with God because we oftentimes uh, have very difficult times waiting when God tells us to wait. You know, throughout my Christian life, I've struggled when God has told me to wait. When I pray, there are two answers I'm okay with. And those two answers are yes and no. The one answer I really don't want to hear from God is wait. And we get that. I'm sure you know, you've prayed and you've received that. You're like, okay, Lord, I have this issue. I just want to know if you're going to answer it or if you're not going to answer it. And then God just kind of tells you to wait. And I don't like that. I'd rather just say, you know, just say no. I'll just take no. At least I know the answer. But, you know, waiting is something that we often struggle with. 
Now, the reason I've talked about waiting is because what we're going to see here uh, in Acts chapter 1 are the followers of Jesus waiting. If you remember, Jesus has just given them two commands. The first command is that one command we looked at last week that seemed like uh, an impossible command. Really, it is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. But he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. Whoa. You want me to go into all the world and preach the gospel? But the second command He says, before you go, you need to wait. Wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you to be able to go into the world and reach the world with the gospel. So first Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait. And I sympathize with these guys because waiting for God can be difficult. Waiting for anything for us can be difficult. But you know, as I have matured in my Christian life, I've discovered something important about waiting on God. I've discovered that the difficulty of waiting on God is usually associated with what you choose to do while you're waiting. You see, what makes waiting good or bad is usually based on what you choose to do while you wait. That's going to kind of determine whether that time is a blessing or whether that time is a curse. You see, oftentimes we don't wait on the Lord very wisely. We don't redeem the time that we're waiting very wisely. If you're anything like me throughout your life, you know, you're, you're waiting for God because there's a circumstance that you're in that you, you want an answer to and it's difficult. Or, and, and instead of really focusing on the Lord and focusing on your time with the Lord and spending time you know, investing in that relationship, you're focused on the, the difficulty. You're focused on the circumstance. That's what kind of gets your focus and, and everything's kind of geared towards that. And, and unfortunately, when you keep your focus on the problem, you miss the solution, which is Jesus. And so oftentimes we're so focus on the problem that we miss what we need the most, Jesus. So something God has shown me and something that I have experienced is that when I wait by redeeming my time through spending it with Jesus, through spending it focused on Jesus, it totally changes my response to waiting. It totally changes that waiting time for me. That waiting becomes a blessing instead of a difficulty. That waiting becomes a growing process instead of a grieving process. That waiting becomes a fulfilling time instead of a frustrating time. But I've also seen the other side. When I'm not focused on the Lord, when I'm not focused on time with Him, and I'm just dwelling on the circumstances around me, waiting can be quite horrible. Waiting can be quite devastating and frustrating and difficult to go through. So waiting on God doesn't have to be a difficulty. It doesn't have to be a frustration. It doesn't have to be a problem. As long as we wait... In the right way, focused on Jesus and spending time with Jesus. Now, in the verses we're going to look at this morning, we're actually going to see a good example from the disciples. You know, throughout the Gospels, we've seen a lot of bad examples from the disciples. They've done a lot of foolish things. And here in Acts chapter 1, we're actually going to see a good example of how they wait on the Lord. But they're not just going to be waiting on God. There's also going to be a significant decision that they have to make. And you know what? I think this is important because throughout each and every day, there are decisions we have to make. And then, you know, there often comes very significant decisions that we have to make as well. And we're going to see a good example from these disciples, not only on how they waited on God, but what they did before making a decision for the Lord. So as we look at these verses here in Acts chapter 1, I think we're going to see some great practical and applicable things for us because all of us whether we like it or not, we have times where we got to wait on the Lord. 
And also, we make decisions regularly. And so what we see here with Jesus' followers is a great challenge and an encouragement for us. So the last thing that Jesus told his followers before he ascends into heaven, he says, I want you guys to go to Jerusalem, and I don't want you to leave. Wait there until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. And so that's the last thing they've been told. We left off in verse 11, so let's see how they respond to this command to wait. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12, says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers." So the last thing Jesus tells his followers to do is go to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told them this when he was on the Mount of Olives. That's where he ascended into heaven. And so we're told here by Luke that they leave the Mount of Olives, and they go to Jerusalem. They are obedient to what Jesus told them to do. And they come to this upper room. We're not told for sure, but it's likely that it's the same upper room that the disciples had their final Passover meal with Jesus before he was crucified. And so we have this group of people there. Luke lists many of them by name, but also we see in in verse 15 that there were 120 of them. So we have the 11 disciples listed by name. We have Jesus' mother, Mary. We have Jesus' brothers as well. We have the women that followed him. And so there's a group of 120 people in this upper room. Now, the most important thing I want us to note is what they were doing. How did they redeem the time as they were waiting on God? What did they do in this time as they're gathered together? They're waiting for God to come through with his promise, the promise to send the Holy Spirit, but he hasn't done it yet. And they're just waiting. And so how did they wait? And I think that's the real thing I want you to note because we wait all the time as well. But the question is, how are we waiting? Well, we're told they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. You know, these disciples of Jesus, these followers of Jesus, they waited very wisely. They redeemed the time that they had waiting on the Lord. You know, we're going to see through these verses that we're going to look at this morning that there are seven things that Jesus' followers do as they wait on him and before they make a very big decision. And we're going to note these seven things because these are seven important things for us. As we're waiting on God, as we're about to make decisions, these are seven things that we should be doing in our own lives to help us in these circumstances. The first thing Jesus' followers did is something that we already noted. They were obedient to Jesus' command. Jesus says, go to Jerusalem, wait there. And that's exactly what they do. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? How hard of a command is that? Well, I want you to think about that for a moment. Jerusalem, what just happened in Jerusalem? Who is in Jerusalem? Well, Jesus was just crucified in Jerusalem by the religious leaders who dwell in Jerusalem. And if the religious leaders heard the disciples preaching a message that Jesus was risen from the dead, and we're going to find out very quickly through the book of Acts, they're willing to kill them for that message. So, you know, this is a place, remember, right before Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples were in Jerusalem. And what were they doing? They were hiding for fear of their lives. And that was a founded fear. Because the reality was, these religious leaders would kill them. 
And so Jesus isn't, you know, when he says go to Jerusalem, you might think, okay, what's the big deal? The big deal is he's asking them to go in a place where their lives would be in danger. Go to a place where they might think, you know what, Jesus, why don't we go wait in the very northern part of Israel or, or maybe out here in Galilee in some rural area? That's a good place to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. We won't have any of the religious leaders bothering us out here. But Jesus said, no, no, I want you to go into Jerusalem. I want you to go into that area and that place where, yes, you're going to have those around you that don't want you there and could cause problems. And so it wasn't some easy, simple thing where they just go, okay, we'll be obedient. The reality is they're obeying, recognizing, you know what? Our lives are in danger by doing what God has commanded us to do. Now, the disciples couldn't have expected their waiting and their decision-making process to go very well if they said, you know what, Jesus, I know you said wait in Jerusalem, but we're going to go somewhere else, and we'll wait there, and we want you to bless everything. If you start with disobedience, you can't expect blessing to follow. You can't expect God to move after that, and so the same is true for us. You know, we can't expect our waiting and decision-making process to go well if we start in disobedience to God. You know, If you recognize that you've started or that decision-making process or that waiting process and disobedience, you've started in some sinful way, the first thing that you should do is get right with the Lord. Confess your sin. You know, Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Unconfessed sin is one of the biggest hindrances to our decision-making process. It's one of the biggest hindrances to our prayer life. It's one of the biggest hindrances to waiting on the Lord. And so I would encourage you, you recognize that. You know what? I've started in disobedience. Deal with it quickly. Don't just continue that waiting process or that decision-making process in disobedience. Deal with it so that it doesn't continue to impact that time. If there's something in your life right now that God's calling you to do that you're struggling with, I'm sure the disciples, when they heard Jerusalem, weren't like, woohoo, let's do it. There probably was a sense of, oh, goodness, why that city? Anywhere else you could have chosen. You know, there was that sense in which, you know what, this is difficult to follow this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to be obedient. You know, God calls us to do a lot of things, and it's a difficulty for us. And if right now you're recognizing that maybe he's calling you to give up a certain sin in your life and you're like, oh, I want to hold on to that. It's difficult to do that. Or maybe he's calling you to, to be a spiritual leader in your home that you haven't been. You're like, oh, I don't know if I can handle that. Or, or he's calling you to reach out to people with the gospel and you're fearful of that or whatever it is. There's things that God calls us to do that oftentimes we feel are difficult and we have a choice to make. Am I going to obey or not? You know, when the Lord called Jenny and I to come plant a church here, there was some difficulty that was associated with deciding to say yes. There were a lot of unknown factors that came into play as well. I didn't know how God would bring a ministry team together. I didn't know how the ministry would go. I didn't know if I would be able to get a job that would be able to support my family. I mean, there were a lot of things going through my mind and, you know, that, that brought that difficulty of, well, what's going to happen, Lord, if I do this? And ultimately, I just had to say, you know what, I'm just going to be obedient. I know there's difficulty. I know certain things could come that could be problematic, but that's all irrelevant. God, you said do it, and therefore I'm going to obey you. You know what? If I didn't come, I would have missed out on so many of the wonderful blessings that he has poured out on me for being obedient to him. And I think that's the reality. You're always blessed when you obey. In my Christian life, I can honestly say I've never regretted obeying God. I never stopped and said, man, I just wish I was disobedient. I've regretted a lot disobeying God, but there's never been a time when I obeyed him and regretted that. The best place to be in your relationship with God is a place of obedience. 
So the first thing that Jesus' followers do, it's, it's a wonderful example to us. They start in obedience. It's a great starting point whenever you're waiting on God or about to make a decision as well. We need to start being obedient to God's command. The second thing Jesus' followers did is seen in verse 14. We're told they all continued with one accord. The Greek word here translated one accord means a unity with one mind, one passion, one accord. You know, we're going to see this phrase over and over in the book of Acts relating to the church. One accord. They were together. They were unified. And this is something that I think is so important for us as followers of Jesus. As they were there in the upper room, there was this strong unity among them. They were unified in what they were doing. They were unified in why they were doing it. So the second thing that Jesus' followers did as they waited on the Lord before they made their decisions is they were unified together as believers in Christ. When you're waiting on the Lord with other believers or making a decision with other believers, unity is very important because lack of unity totally undermines that process. When you're trying to wait and there's lack of unity, you get so distracted. As I already mentioned, you know, the way in which you wait is important. And when there's all this bickering and backbiting and, and lack of unity and, and trying to deal with that junk, you, you don't really wait properly. And when you're trying to make decisions together and you can't unify together, obviously the decision-making process is undermined as well. I think something we need to understand is the enemy loves to divide us as Christians. He first wants to keep us from ever becoming a believer, but once we accept Christ, he doesn't just give up. He says, well, now I want to try to destroy any impact you're going to have, and I know one way I can do that is to bring division among you. If I can divide you up, I can divide and conquer, I can make it so that you're not very effective in reaching the world for Christ. And so, you know, he loves to try to divide us, and we've got to be careful not to allow him to be successful in that. When we're unified, we are so much more effective for God and so much more effective against Satan. So the first thing that Jesus' followers did was they waited on God, they, they were obedient to him. The second thing is they were unified. The third thing we see also in verse 14, we're told they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So as Jesus' followers, there's 120 of them packed in this upper room, what are they devoting their time mainly to? We're told prayer and supplication. Well, we're, we're, we're familiar with this term prayer, but, but supplication is a sense of desperation and earnestness in prayer. So Luke is saying they didn't just get up there and pray. There was this prayer that was really earnest. There was a, a sense of desperation in, in what they were seeking the Lord for. So the third thing that Jesus' followers did was they continued to earnestly pray. I think this is one of the best things we can do as we're waiting on God. You want to say, well, well how... Excuse me. <laughs> How do you want to uh, spend your time in that? You know, you need to pray. That's a, that, a, an excellent thing that we should do is, is pray. But not just personally, also corporately. Pray together. Join other believers in prayer. I believe that prayer is much more effective when you get others to do it with you and for you. You know, you don't have to be the lone ranger when it comes to prayer. It's good to pray for yourself, and it's good to pray on your own, and it's good to pray for others on your own, but it's, it's a great thing when we come together corporately and lift up requests to the Lord and pray for things together. 
So when you have a decision to make, come to other believers. Hey, you know what? I have this decision, and this is what it's all about. Can you pray for me here? Or when you're waiting, can you just pray that I would wait wisely, that I would depend on the Lord in this, and I would focus on him, and, and just coming alongside of one another in prayer and just blessing one another with that. Something important to remember is we don't have to do things on our own. That's the wonderful truth about the body of Christ. We don't have to live the Christian life alone. We don't have to deal with the enemy alone. We have others, uh, believers in Christ, who can come alongside of us and help us and hold us up and pray for us and hold us accountable. And that's a wonderful thing. But we have to take advantage of that. And part of that is coming together corporately and worshiping corporately and studying corporately and getting to know one another and fellowshipping and praying with each other. You know, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, said, Prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. I like that quote. Prayer is such an important thing for us to do both personally and corporately. So we see these disciples waiting, and they're waiting very well. They're waiting with obedience. They're waiting with unity. They're waiting with prayer. And now we see this big decision that comes up. As they're in this process of waiting, and they're waiting well, we're now told by Luke in verse 15 through 20, a decision that they need to make. Let's see what's said, starting in verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his entrails gushed out, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Achel Damah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. So Jesus' followers have been waiting well. They've been unified. They've been obedient. They've been praying. And now all of a sudden as they're doing this, Peter stands up. Peter, the one who was the most outspoken, he stands up in the midst of them, and notice what he says to them. He says, men and brethren, there's 120 of us in this room. The scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Notice something that Peter does here. This is very important what Peter does here. He goes back to the word of God. Hey, hey, guys, uh, we got to go back to the Word because the Word of God reveals something very important to us that we need to do something with. Peter comes back to the Psalms. He comes back to something that spoke about Judas. And we know Judas, real, right just before this, he was the one who betrayed Jesus. Now, before Luke reveals to us the scriptures that Peter quotes, he tells us how Judas died. Matthew's gospel gives us uh, just a little quick snippet. Luke here has the more CSI gory details, but he says this. Now this man purchased a field, speaking of Judas, with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that it is called in their own language, Achadamah, that is, field of blood. Now Matthew, he just says in chapter 27, verse 5, Judas departed and went and hanged himself. 
So we know that Judas hung himself, but Luke gives more details. Uh, We don't know how long he was hanging there, but either the rope or the branch breaks. Uh, Judas' body falls headlong onto the ground, and we're told that his bursts open and his entrails start to come out. And so uh, this was obviously a gross thing, but the people see this, and they name this field the field of blood, and no one lives in it because of it, which is interesting because now we get to the scriptures that Peter quotes from the Psalms. And he says, for it is written in the Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. And so here Peter is quoting two different Psalms. The first Psalm is Psalm 69, which he reveals that Jesus's betrayer would have a dwelling place that would be desolate that no one would live in. And that's exactly what happened to Judas as he killed himself in this place that he bought. And then he falls and, you know, no one lives in it. They call it the place of blood. The second psalm is Psalm 109, which reveals that another person needs to take Judas's position. There were 12 disciples, 12 that Jesus uh, called to follow him. Now there's only 11 because Judas the betrayer is dead and gone. And so the psalm in Psalm 109 says, now someone needs to be chosen to fulfill that role and take that position that Judas once had. Now, what I want you to note from this is a reliance that they have on the word of God. Peter points out there's a decision we have to make. Well, why do we have to make a decision? Because the Bible says we do. Psalm tells us that we need to decide that... Another take his office. There's 11 of us. We've got to fulfill uh, what this scripture says and, and put someone in the office of Judas. So the fourth thing that Jesus' followers did is they wait on God, and before they make a decision is they rely upon God's word. You know, God's word is one of the best things we can use to guide us in our decisions, to guide us in our everyday life. And as we wait on the Lord, one of the best things to do, I've already mentioned prayer is a great thing to do, but one of the best things to do as well is to study your Bible, especially if you're waiting for a decision. You're saying, Lord, I want you to guide me. I want you to direct me. Well, understand one of the ways that God most commonly directs us as believers is through his word. You know, oftentimes we as Christians, we use the phrase, God spoke to me. I use it. I'm sure you use it. Oh, I was reading my Bible this morning and God spoke to me. Or I was praying and God spoke to me. And if you actually think about what we're saying, you you can see how people would get the wrong idea. What we're not saying, for most anyone at least, is that I heard some audible voice from God and he spoke to me as I was reading. Or he audibly spoke to me as I was praying. That's not what I'm saying when I say it, when most Christians say it. God's never audibly spoken to me. I've never met a Christian that God audibly spoke to. If you look through the scriptures, it's very rare that God ever audibly spoke to anyone. So we're not meaning that when we claim that. But the reality is when God speaks, you know, sometimes we have the decision and we're just like, all right, Lord, I'm waiting. I just want to hear this voice. I want you to tell me what I should do. And God's like, "Ah, that's really not how I work. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll do that. But for the most part... The way in which I speak is through my word. You know, I saw this cartoon that I like because, yeah, I think it kind of reiterates this reality of like, Lord, speak to me. Okay, great. Read my word. I've revealed everything you need to know about me, about my plan for you, about how I want you to live. You got questions? I got answers. It's right here. Take it and read it. But too often it's like, no, 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 I don't want to read that. Just tell me with an audible voice so I can just hear it. Well, God says, you know what? That's not how I work. I've given you my word, and so study it. If you need direction, that's the best place to start. Get to the word of God and allow him to speak 
through it and then put it into practice. So, so far we've seen Jesus' followers demonstrate obedience. They've demonstrated unity, prayer, and a reliance upon God's word, which brings us to the fifth thing we see in verses 21 through 23. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that Jesus was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. So Jesus' followers recognized, all right, from God's word, we're told there needs to be a replacement for Judas, and they come up with a requirement. And the requirement makes logical sense because Jesus has already told them, you guys are called to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so they say, okay, if we're to be a a witness of Jesus, then we need to pick someone who truly can say they were there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was baptized by John the Baptist all the way to the end. And so that was their criteria. And there was only two people left. So there's 120 in the room. Uh, You've got the 11 that already saw all that. And there was only two other people that were there from the beginning all the way to the end. And so these are the two men, Justice and Matthias, that meet this criteria of, hey, we were witnesses of all of Jesus' ministry, starting at John the Baptist to the uh, death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the thing I think is important to note is the reason they're seeking to replace Judas is because... God's word told them to. I don't think this was this great desire within them of let's add to our 11 one more. You know, if you remember throughout the Gospels, all they did was complain who's the greatest. I'm doubting that they're trying to bring another into the fold. Well, then there's another person that we have to compete against. I don't think this was some desire within them. They're being obedient. They recognize the word of God. It's God's will that we do this. And therefore, that's why we're doing it. That's why we're taking the step to appoint someone because we recognize that it's God's will that has been declared through his word. So the fifth thing that Jesus' followers did as they waited on God and before they made a decision is they desired God's will to be done, not their own. And this is something that I think is so huge for us as we're waiting on the Lord. What kind of desire is within us as we're about to make a decision? I can guarantee you if the desire is for selfish reasons, for your own benefit, for your own pleasures, you're not going to make a godly decision. Ultimately, if you want to make godly decisions, then ultimately you have to have a desire for God's will to be done, not your own. That needs to be the motive behind why you want to do what you're doing. And so unfortunately, I think for us as Christians, oftentimes that's the thing that gets us making decisions that are ungodly. Because really the motive is all about me and my selfishness and my desires and my wants. And I'm not really focused on what is God's desire? What is his will? What does he want? And if that's completely different than what I want, that's okay, because I'm going to pursue what God's will is, not my own. As Jesus said in his prayer, pray God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not my will, my desires, what I want. And so as we're making decisions, is that really the motive of our heart? Is that really what we're thinking about? Is that really where we're coming from? Is Lord, as I make this decision in all sincerity and honesty, I want to do your will, not my own. It's a very important starting place. You know, we see Jesus' followers doing this, which brings us to the sixth thing. Verses 24 and 25. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. 
So which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place? Once again, the disciples are praying, but this time it's a specific prayer. God, show us which one of these guys is to take on this role of being one of the 12 disciples. Now, I find this very interesting and significant because if you remember back in the beginning of Luke's gospel, these 12 guys, now 11, they saw Jesus do something right before he chose them. Because there was more than just the 12. There was many people following Jesus. But Jesus did something and then specifically chose these 12 guys. And Luke tells us what Jesus did. Luke 6 12 and 13 says, Now it came to pass in those days that Jesus went out onto the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he named apostles. So notice when Jesus went to choose the 12, what did he do prior to that? He went and he spent all night in prayer before he made that choice. And I find that significant because those guys would have known that. They were waiting. He went up on the mountain. They're there, and they're anticipating, who's he going to choose? And Jesus goes and prays before he does that. They saw that example by Jesus, and the thing I want you to note now is they put that example of Jesus into practice. Before they choose, they do the exact thing, same thing that Jesus did. They take that time to pray and make sure that God directs them to the specific person that they should choose. So the sixth thing that Jesus' followers did as they waited on God and before they made a decision is they followed Jesus' example. And this is something as well that is so important for us. I've mentioned it many times, and I'll mention it many more through my teachings, but Jesus is the example for us to follow, the perfect example for us to follow. If you look and you think, oh, man, Paul was such a great example, or Peter, yeah, a lot of those guys had portions of their life that are good examples, but there's only one who was a perfect example in everything that he did, and that is Christ. And so he should be the ultimate example for us in everything. As you wait on God, Well, how did Jesus wait on God? He waited on God mostly through prayer. So that's a great thing to do. You know, as you look at, you know, this decision that I'm going to make or how should I treat these people? Well, how did Jesus deal with those things and do those things? A few years ago, something was very popular. It's still kind of popular today. Bracelets, T-shirts that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I think that's a great thing to ponder before making a decision. Because he is the example that we want to follow. And so as we're pondering that and thinking, you know, okay, should I do this or that? Well, what would Jesus do? How would he deal with this circumstance? Well, what example do we see set by him in the Gospels that could encourage and direct me in this decision that I'm making? So we've seen Jesus' followers demonstrate obedience and unity, prayer, reliance upon God's word, a desire for God's will, not their own, and following Jesus' example, which brings us to the seventh and final thing that we see here that they do in verse 26. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So after praying, after looking at God's word, after really Focusing on those things, they now have a decision to make between these two men, Joseph and Matthias. So once again, they pray one more time, God reveal which one it should be, and then we're told they cast lots. Now, it's at this point in time that many people stop and think, man, they were doing so well. Oh, leading up to this, they had all the right things happening, and then you end it by casting lots? What are you thinking? 
Well, casting lots is probably what you think it is. Uh, back at this time, the casting of lots, it usually involves stones. Sometimes it would involve sticks, but they'd have different writing on them, uh, and you would just throw it on a table or on the ground, kind of like dice, uh, and what was shown was the thing that kind of directed you. Uh, and so, you know, I can see why people look at that and they think that's just complete chance, like you're throwing dice or like you have little straws that are different sizes and whoever gets a short one loses. I mean, is that really the way in which they chose these guys? I mean, that just seems so fleshly, so ungodly. They they, they pray, they rely on the word, they follow Jesus' example, and then they end with casting lots? Well, I want you to recognize something that the view of casting lots of people back in that day would have been very different from our perspective today, which is basically you know, this thing of chance, which doesn't seem to be any type of godly direction. But it's interesting to note, if you look through the Old Testament, that it was a legitimate way that God used to direct people. We see many examples of God using the casting of lots to direct his people. I'll give you a couple examples of it. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, we're going to see Aaron the high priest use this. Aaron shall offer the bull as a a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat in on which the Lord's lot fell, And offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So we're told here that Aaron, the high priest, God actually says, you're going to cast lots. Basically, probably just two little stones. One represents the, the goat you're going to kill, the other one, the one that you're going to let go. Uh, and so they do it. They cast those lots. Aaron's told by God to do it. God directs it, uh, and he made the decision based on that. Numbers, chapter 26, verse 54. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers, according to the lot. Their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. Once again, now remember, they get the land, and it's like, who, which tribe is going to get which portion? Well, how did they figure that out? How did God direct them? They used, once again, the casting of lots to do this. Now, I can give a lot more examples. I think the most important verse when it comes to this is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. Notice what it says. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. You see, the Old Testament mindset of Jews at that time was this isn't something of chance. As we cast these lots, we trust that God literally is causing these things to turn in such a way and land on these things so that he is directing with it. That was their mindset. That's what Proverbs is saying. Yeah, you cast it in the lap, but it's the Lord ultimately the decisions from him. He's the one who's going to direct these things. He's the one who's going to make this happen. And so throughout Israel's history, God used casting of lots as a way to direct them to what his will was. And so as the disciples do this, it's not some, all right, we've done all this great stuff. We prayed, we relied on the word, we we followed Jesus' example, and now we're just going to go by chance and see what happens at the end. That wasn't their mindset at all. They felt the casting of lots was the final way which God could clearly direct which one of these guys was supposed to take the place of Judas. So this wasn't some ungodly, unspiritual, fleshly, let's just go by chance. Their mind was we see throughout the Old Testament this pattern, and I'm sure even themselves have experienced, we do this for God to direct us. So the seventh thing 
the followers of Jesus did as they waited on God and before they made a decision is they relied on God to direct them. Now, the way they chose to rely on God's direction was through casting of lots. But something I want to point out is remember what they're waiting for. They are waiting for the Holy Spirit who has yet to come. And I think this is an important reality that we need to understand because prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament, the casting of lots was a a way in which they could determine God's will. But I want you to note something. From this point on through the rest of the New Testament, we never see an example of someone casting lots to determine God's will. Well, why is that? Well, I think the clear thing is because now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and we don't need that. So I don't think this is something as believers today that we think, oh, great, I'm going to go home and get some dice. I'm going to roll those out and say, all right, Lord, these are my decisions. What are you going to do? Oh, six, great. This is what I'll do. That's not what he's telling us. Ultimately, we now have the Holy Spirit to direct us, and I believe that's why we don't see from this point on any casting of lots throughout the New Testament or any encouragement to do that because they didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. They're about to receive it. We do, and so this isn't something I think is for us today, but it was something legitimate for the Old Testament saints and all the way up to them. So this wasn't some you know, crazy thing. This is something they wanted God's direction. And that's the thing I want us to just kind of take from this is they were seeking God to direct them for this decision. And ultimately, that should be what we should be looking for as well. Lord, I want your direction in this, not my thoughts or my you know, inkling in this. I want you to clearly direct me. A challenging verse, or two verses, should I say. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. You know, when we want direction, I want God to direct my path. Great. You know what Proverbs says? If you want that, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And notice what you shouldn't do. Don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and then he'll direct your paths. See, the big problem we have is we're trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in him. We're leaning on our own understanding instead of leaning on God's and we wonder, why aren't you directing my paths? Well, because we're not doing what he told us to do. Trust in him, lean on his understanding and he will direct your path. He will guide you into the things that you need to do. We see this example here with the disciples. They waited well, and they made a decision based on doing wise things. And so in these verses, we see seven things the disciples did that we should be doing as well. As we wait on the Lord, as we seek to make a decision for whatever it may be in our life, first, we should obey God's commands. We should be unified with other believers. We should pray personally and corporately. We should rely upon God's word. We should desire God's will and not our own. We should follow Jesus' example And we should rely on God to direct us. If we do all those things as we're waiting, I can guarantee you the waiting process will be a blessing. It's not going to be some horrible thing. It's not going to be some frustrating thing. If you do this in the waiting process, it's going to be great. And if you do this in the decision-making process, your decisions are going to be godly. Your decisions are going to be directed by the Lord. You can be confident in doing things that God wants. Well, we're going to close this morning putting all seven of these things into practice. We're going to close by obeying one of God's commands. We're going to do it unified together. We're going to have a time of corporate prayer. We're going to rely on what God's word tells us to do. We're going to do it because the Bible says it's God's will for us to do it. We're going to do it because Jesus set the example of it for us. And we're going to do it because God has directed us to do it. And the thing that I'm speaking of is communion. We're going to close this morning taking communion together. And it really fulfills all of these things that we've looked at this morning. And so 
I'm going to have the worship team come up. And the worship team is going to lead us in a, a, a worship song. And as they do that, we're going to pass the communion elements around. And um, I just encourage you to, to hold on to them so that we can take them together. Uh, but, you know, this is for those of you who have made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, and so if you've never done that before, then I would just encourage you just to let the communion elements pass by. Um, but uh, I just want to read for you what we see in Scripture about this uh, important reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So we're going to pass these elements out, uh, and I encourage you just to hold on to them, and we'll take it together.